Luis Elizondo is a US Army veteran who served for two decades as a counterintelligence officer for the Department of Defense. In 2009, he was made the director of one of the Pentagon's most clandestine programs, one that would not come to light for another eight years. From reporters Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, the New York Times published its groundbreaking article that subsequently brought this program out of the shadows. It was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, known internally as ATIP, and its purpose was the tracking and analysis of UFOs or what is being more commonly referred to by the United States Defense and Intelligence Apparatus as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP. The ATIP program was responsible for analyzing the capabilities and techno-signatures of UAP in order to extrapolate understandings and theories on the physics and technology behind these completely unknown, beyond next-generation platforms. The main concern of the program was that these UAPs possessed the ability to penetrate highly secure US nuclear facilities and training grounds, and were even reported to shadow US carrier groups and warplanes into active combat theaters in the Middle East. As the director of the ATIP program, Lou Elizondo has been made aware of information pertaining to the UAP portfolio that has not come to light as of yet and he is still very much beholden to active non-disclosure agreements with the US government as it pertains to their role and breadth of knowledge regarding the UAP issue. Due to internal struggles within the Department of Defense, conflicting belief systems, as well as a lack of reporting up the chain of command in regards to the workings of ATIP, Mr. Elizondo decided to resign from the Department of Defense in order for him to, in his own words, carry on the mission that he was given which was to get to the bottom of what the UAP issue is and whether or not it represents a threat to both the American people and humanity as a whole. After leaving the Department of Defense, Lou Elizondo joined forces with individuals such as the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Mellon, a man who was absolutely integral in getting the three now famous Navy videos of UAPs released out into the public domain. These videos were recorded via the forward-looking infrared camera pods of US Navy F-18 fighter jets whilst they were undergoing large-scale training exercises. Both Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, alongside other high-ranking government insiders and scientists, joined the Public Benefit Corporation known as To The Stars Academy of Arts and Science. Spearheaded by an unlikely character, the former Blink-182 rock star Tom DeLonge, who has a long-standing passion and research background on the UFO subject. Using his fame and his networking abilities, Tom managed to secure meetings with highly credentialed individuals within the US government, spearhead defense contractors such as Lockheed Martin, and was even invited into clandestine meetings within the inner sanctums of NASA in order to create what would eventually become To The Stars Academy of Arts and Science, which would strive to raise awareness regarding the issues of UAPs with the intention of starting a serious conversation and engaging with the American people and its body politic on this fundamentally important issue. Lou Elizondo, alongside Christopher Mellon and former Lockheed Skunk Works Advanced Programs Director Steve Justice, have recently departed from To The Stars Academy with the intention of moving, as Lou Elizondo puts it, into second gear. I have been very much hoping to have an opportunity to speak with someone as highly credentialed and knowledgeable as Lou, and it is genuinely a privilege for myself to now be in a position to do exactly that. Now, before we start the interview, I need to provide a quick disclaimer upon the request of Lou Elizondo. Now, I personally did not find him to be lacking of energy at all. 
I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and found many of his answers to be extremely insightful. However, Lou wanted me to apologize to all of you if he sounded tired during this conversation. Something that really struck me was the humble nature of this individual and his genuine desire to assist in this effort of UAP transparency. A desire and passion that has caused him to forego his need for rest of late and has instead been tirelessly contributing to various platforms via these types of interviews. Like I said, I did not get the feeling that he was tired, but he insisted that I provide this apology from him to all of you, and he has promised to return for another interview on Project Unity in the near future. And so I would like to wholeheartedly thank him for his perseverance, and I hope he's now having a well-deserved respite. He has most certainly earned it. And without further ado, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Mr. Luis Elizondo. Just have a quick sip of my tea. Classic British guy over here. I've got a cup of tea. <laughs> By the way, the UK is my wife's favorite country. She, <laughs> every time we go, she she cries when we leave. She absolutely loves the UK. Well, it's there's, there's a lot to love about it, apart from the weather. Well, now, I can imagine that would probably be a little bit of a, of a challenge. <laughs> so it is an absolute pleasure to finally have a chance to sit down and speak with you. I must admit that with a man such as yourself, there are so many questions I want to ask you. And I know we only have about an hour to do this. So you'll have to forgive me for my slight sense of urgency. But I want to try and get as many of these questions put forward to you as I can. But let me just first sure. say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's honestly a privilege for myself to be in this position. And it is sincerely my privilege too. Thank you so much. And by the way, thank you very much for what you do and what your audience does. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have over time given me credit that probably is not um, fully deserved because as I've always said, this has been a team effort and I mean it sincerely. I would not have been able to achieve uh, what I've been able to achieve had you all not uh, been doing what you're doing. Um, so this is truly a team effort and it's, it's I think, a mutual victory for all. Well, I thank you for that. And uh, although you are being very humble, I do agree, it's absolutely a team effort. Now, um, something you've been mentioning quite frequently of late is the shift into what you call second gear. Now, you've already hinted that this will involve international engagement on the UAP issue. And as a UK citizen, I must admit that I'm somewhat disgruntled by the lack of response, both from my country's government and our mainstream media networks. So, when it comes to addressing the UAP issue, especially because there's really been a, quite a significant radio silence, especially in the most recent years, circa 2017 to present day, where you've had such an elevated exponential increase in the importance of this conversation, and yet there hasn't been much of a headway over in my side of the pond. And so my first question to you is whether or not second gear and a transition to an international conversation would involve communication and data sharing on the UAP issue with specifically Five Eyes Alliance domains such as the UK? Absolutely. In fact, I would, I would, I would tell you that it's already occurring. Um, I can't go into much more detail than that, but uh, you know, we've had a long standing relationship with our Five Eyes partnerships. And for those those listening to your program for the very first time may, them on that, may not know what Five Eyes is. Um, the Five Eyes is the historical relationship between the United States and Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, and there has been always a very, very close relationship uh, our countries have had with each other historically. And as a result, it's not uncommon for us to share uh, national security related information with each other. And that construct is under the, um, it's currently under the, the, the construct of the five eyes um, relationship. 
So the question is, are we sharing information with our Five Eyes partners? Well, yes, we are. Uh, we, we always are. Um, I think um, the question is, to what degree are other countries comfortable in having this conversation publicly? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a decision each country has to make for themselves. Historically, my country has been in the same exact situation as the UK. Uh, you know, nobody really wanted to have a conversation about this topic. For, for quite a long time. So um, I can understand your frustration, but to be completely honest with you and fair, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't blame the UK government right now. Um, there's still a lot of unknowns and uh, you know, the, the British are, are notoriously always very um, risk perceptive. Um, they want to know all the, uh, the potential pitfalls and, and risks involved in something. And, and to some degree, that's that's actually kept kept us alive in combat. So, um, again, I understand the reticence. Um, I guess my 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 advice to you would be try not to to be too disappointed. I think I think change is coming. You've kind of already answered this, but I'll just circle around just in case there's anything else I can gleam out of it. During your career within ATIP, were you made aware of direct Five Eyes intel sharing on specifically the UAP portfolio? Historically, yes. Historically. Okay. Thank you. Historically. Yeah. So um, moving on to something else. One thing I find curious is, uh, and this is regarding the Nimitz Tic Tac incident, is that uh, it was reported to have jammed the pilot's radar. Now, due to the fact that pretty much all other radar cases with UAPs show the UAP has the ability to seemingly appear on and off radar at will, it makes the jamming seem almost unnecessary. Moreover, considering the craft's performance level and ability to outmaneuver the jets as well as any ordnance, had there been any on board, why do you think it would need to jam human radar? Well, I think when we say jam, that's, that's a misnomer. Uh, right. I think probably the better, better response would be interfere. Um, because we suspect now, based upon the physics that we're seeing, um, that it may not be an actual active attempt to jam. What may actually be happening is that it is a, the, what, what appears to be jamming is really nothing more than a consequence or an artifact, if you will, of, of the object uh, that we're seeing. Um, right. Without going into a lot of detail, if, if you have, imagine looking at a, at a, imagine if you had the ability to, to, manipulate space-time in a localized area, okay, around you. Um, from the outside viewer's perspective, it would be a little bit like looking at koi fish in the bottom of a pond. Uh, you would see a distortion. Now, the object isn't really distorted, but because the, the, the energy that is coming from the sun in the form of light energy, light waves, uh, what, when, it, when it hits that localized area, uh, what goes in is not necessarily at the same frequency that goes out. So that's true, not just with sunlight, but any type of electromagnetic radiation, uh, whether it be uh, artificial, like a radar signature or something as, as, um, as normal as natural light, you would expect or anticipate to see a bit of a distortion. And in fact, um, if you will, the more you had the ability to, to um, manipulate space time in a localized area, uh, that picture, sight picture, would become increasingly distorted. Think of a black hole, right? There's a reason why you can't see inside of a black hole, and that's because you're looking at an object that is that is truly warping space-time 
at the point of the, the event horizon, um, it, it, physics almost becomes nonsensical, really. And so it is possible, and I want to make sure that I caveat here, uh, I'm not saying this is the reason, but if you did have the ability to manipulate space-time in a localized area to the outside observer, um, you could be, uh, you might experience um, shifts, uh, or Doppler shifts um, in frequency. And so I guess the, the long-winded answer to your question is, it may not be active jamming. It yeah. may just simply be uh, the fact like a, that a byproduct, uh, a byproduct, right? It may not be deliberate per se. Okay. You know, one thing I really appreciate about you, Lou, is your continuing presence and engagement with UFO Twitter. Now, you put out a series of tweets recently, one of which was addressing your recent departure from To The Stars Academy of Arts and Science. And you said the following, the battle space is constantly changing, and so we must evolve with it. Dividing to conquer is an age-old tactic. We remain close to our TTSA friends, but sometimes one must leave the regiment to flank the enemy, UAP secrecy. And so my question is, if the enemy is UAP secrecy, does that mean that you view any potential gatekeepers of this information who reside within either government or the private sector as the enemy? And I only say this because if the enemy is UAP secrecy, which I agree with, then surely those responsible for maintaining the secrecy should be viewed as the opposition to those that are demanding transparency. Uh, yes and no. I, I think it's an oversimplified um I think it's an oversimplified way of looking at things to simply say the people that are behind uh, this are the enemy. Um, I, I, I think in some cases they feel they're just doing their job. Um, I don't think there's a purpose attempt, purposeful attempt to deceive the American people. I think probably when you get down to it, uh, there may be a few that, that maybe feel that way, but the vast majority I don't believe feel that way. I think I think they're trying to help the American people, uh, and they believe that that keeping this topic in the shadows until we learn more uh, may be the prudent way forward. Um, I personally disagree with that, uh, but then again, I could also be wrong, and only history will will be able to tell if 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 our approach was a right approach or not. I, I'm a firm believer that government works for the people, and as a result, we have to trust the people with that knowledge. Uh, whatever that knowledge may be, whether it's uh, North Korean uh, ICBMs or a catastrophic pandemic like we're dealing with now called COVID, um, you know, at a minimum, the people deserve to know the truth, whatever that truth is. And I think the same is true regarding this topic of, of UAPs. Um, I don't think that the enemy are necessarily people. Uh, I think it, the enemy is bureaucracy. I think the enemy is stigma. I think the enemy is lack of transparency. All the things for which you're you're fighting for in in, in the UFO Twitter universe to defeat. Um, so I don't know if I really answered that question for you, but again, I I, I think the enemy is really is is the overclassification secrecy of this topic. But again, I, I'm not sure I. I I can go as far as to blame any particular person on it. Um, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you, and I, I appreciate that response. Um, shortly after the New York Times story back in December 2017, you were on, I, I'm pretty sure it was CNN, when you said there is very compelling evidence that we may not be alone. Now, 
you know, that's not a statement that makes room for a foreign adversary such as Russia or China. A statement like that cannot really be misinterpreted as anything else other than you hinting that we're not alone in this universe. Can you tell us in any detail what the compelling evidence for us not being alone is that you were referring to here? Was there anything specific that you were thinking of at this time? Uh, yeah, all my experience in ATIP. I mean, until I, I, I joined ATIP, I didn't even, you know, I, I joked that I couldn't even spell UFO, uh, <laughs> let alone was I really involved with it. Um, you know, I, I think there was compelling information, not just for me, but everybody in the program that left little room for doubt of what was what was going on, what we were witnessing, what we were encountering. And I think that's, for me, um, it was the most telling. Um, you know, at some point you spend your life in the Department of Defense and you're trained to recognize uh, adversarial aircraft and enemy aircraft and technology and weapon systems. And when you come across something like this, it's, it's so far beyond really any type of current paradigm uh, of, of this topic that you kind of have to scratch your head and, and, and say to yourself, what, what's going on here? Um, again, I have to be careful because I, I can't say exactly what I was exposed to, um, but it was certainly enough uh, for me anyways to, to feel compelled that this, this, this is a topic that warrants additional investigation and that's a very real topic and it's, it's, it's not our technology and, and it's, it's probably not some for, sort of foreign adversarial technology either. Well, this kind of segues quite nicely into what I wanted to ask next, which is that uh, Dr. Eric Davis has repeatedly stressed the importance of the 38 defense intelligence reference documents from the precursor program of ATIP known as ORSAP. For those that don't know, that's the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Applications Program. In terms of extrapolating the physics and engineering of 2009 out to 2050 to determine whether or not the Americans can approximate the capabilities of Tic Tacs or UAP, in a scenario where the UAPs might become a future threat to the US. Now, Eric Davis talks about the 1977 Calares Brazil case, where UFOs purportedly utilized beams to kill and injure people. In the 1960s, NASA engineer Dr. Paul Hill theorized about UFOs employing heat beams, paralyzing beams, force beams, and that the UFO propulsion or power systems could be utilized as a weapon. And Dr. Jack Sarfati has theorized UAP having high frequency gravity weapons capable of disrupting aircraft weapon systems, jamming radars and communications and affecting missile launch circuitry, emitting beams of gravity curvature that range in power from that of an electromagnetic pulse to essentially tearing an F-18 apart. My question is how realistic is the time frame given by Davis for the US military to achieve these capabilities and also to convince Congress to allocate the money for a huge Manhattan Project style effort to get there? Well, that, that timeline isn't up to me. That timeline is really up to, to you all uh, and, and the people following this topic. Um, Congress and our government is gonna respond uh, to, to to the people. Uh, mm -hmm. if they feel that there is an interest by the people to do X, Y, Z, then they're going to take the lead, lead the charge in doing that and making sure it's properly resourced. Um, I, uh, to put it bluntly, I think we're at a point where it's, it's probably, uh, it's no longer a theoretical question whether or not this type of, of science is real and possible. Uh, I think it's now just a technical 
challenge right, right. Um, and, and scalability. Uh, I, I, I do, I do believe that uh, that we now have a much better understanding of the physics and the mathematics uh, based upon on our, our our continued exploration into quantum physics. Mm-hmm. We're beginning to realize that a lot of of the observations we're seeing associated with UAP really are just rooted in advanced physics. And I think that yeah. the time will come where we will be able to um, to exploit that. I do have to ask that: How realistic do you think funding for such a an, an endeavor would be, given more immediate and tangible threats presented by near peer adversaries, regional troublemakers like North Korea and Iran, and also obviously the war on terror? Uh, can you reframe that question? I want to make sure that I I, I answer succinctly. So yeah, can, so. Can um, you... How how realistic would funding for something like you know building or designing this technology and making these breakthroughs? How likely would funding for that be, given that we've got quite immediate and tangible threats, uh, you know, such as foreign adversaries that we're concerned sure. about? Sure. Well, terror? let's let's look at the last time the U.S. Uh, was in a similar situation in the world. Um, let's take uh, right after World War II and the Korean War. We had a lot going on, and we had a lot of civil unrest in this country, and we had a lot of issues we were dealing with, and yet we still decided to put a, a man on the moon. And it took us 10 years, but um, keep in mind just a decade before, uh, we were still using aircraft with propellers uh, to fly across the ocean. And now we're talking about uh, creating spacecraft and putting a man on the moon within a decade. Uh, I think when, when we decide as a people to do something, then uh, all sorts of things are possible. Let's not forget that out of the Apollo mission alone, Something like 6,200 major innovations were, were invented and developed that wound up actually benefiting mankind. Right. And all this was a result of a competition against the United States and Russia to see who was going to be the first person on the moon. And as a result, we have CAT scans and Velcro and LED lights and all these other innovations that we now take for granted um, you know, in, t- in today's day and age. But uh, these were revolutionary approaches to problems that that helped advance society. And so I, I think I think to answer that question, I think it's too early to answer that question, first of all, because uh, we still need more data, we need more transparency, and we need more discussion and insight. Um, but I think we're I think we're getting closer uh, to having that conversation. I think the establishment of a UAP task force was a step in the right direction uh, towards that goal. Uh, of being able to put our time and resources and talents into this topic. Um, so maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than, than some when it, when, it comes to, when it comes to your question as far as, you know, will the government ever galvanize itself to, to pursue this endeavor? Um, I do. I think once it, it accepts the reality that these things are real, then it, it, it's almost fait accompli. I can't see how they, they wouldn't, if that makes sense. No, well, I would like to channel your optimism, especially as a, a young guy, as a 26-year-old, you know, young man. I would like to, as I've said before, be living this, not talking about it in 10 years. Well, I, I think we are. I think we're. I think we're. We're living it now. I think you're. You're witnessing that. I think you're. You're. You're part of that conversation. Definitely. Uh, definitely. You're. You're. You're making the difference. The very difference that that you want to see happen. Um, you are. You're doing it yourself. 
And I think that's that's incredible. I think that's that's you know the fact that you and I can even have this conversation about this topic, yeah, yeah. where three years ago people would have thought that we should be institutionalized, <laughs> I think is a tremendous step forward. Absolutely, and, and you and your listeners are, are are part of that, very much part of that equation. Now you told Tucker Carlson in October 2019 that TTSA had obtained quite a bit of material that might be from such off-world crafts as, as have been mentioned in you know the New York Times and such. Now you said to quote some of that material, its provenance is frankly hearsay, whilst the provenance of other materials has been substantiated. Are you able to elaborate on this at all? Are you saying that To the Stars Academy was able to prove that some of these materials that they've examined are not from this earth? No, what I what I was saying is that it's trying to prove. Uh, right. There's a big difference between saying proved and trying to prove. Um, it would be irresponsible of me to to say anything has been proved uh, because proof requires peer review. It requires the the, the scientific uh, process of of peer review and replication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we're not there yet. Um, I think we're we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. Um, and you know, keep in mind that's why we had the the, the agreement with the CRADA with 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 the U.S. government because we realized it can't just be a bunch of people making a claim in the private world that they've 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 come up with something. It has to be looked at and validated and verified uh, by a cognizant authority. And in this particular case, the U.S. government uh, is probably uh, best situated in this regard to to serve that purpose. Um, so obviously the hope and the intent would be to have someone in the US government look over this uh, the material and the results as well and, and, and see what conclusions they come up with. You might not be able to answer this, but um, in regards to the crater, do you think that that's still uh, going in a good direction for the benefit of the public eventually? Or is there any concerns that this might kind of just uh, stay in a little bit of a black hole in the military? Well, our hope is that it doesn't stay as a black hole in the military. Is it possible? Sure. Um, but as more and more people become aware and Congress begins to demand answers and action, it gets increasingly difficult for it to stay in the shadows. Um, it, 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 at some point, you're going to have to have that conversation with the elected officials, and then they're going to have that conversation with the American people. So uh, while some people might say, well, yeah, it's just going to go back to, to where it was, I don't think so. I, I don't think we can put the toothpaste back in the proverbial tube at this point. I think we've come too far uh, and uh, the conversation is, is being had. Dr. Eric Davis once stated that during his time in ATIP, he located the reverse engineering programs holding the craft. And if they had been able to get access to the program, then they would have dramatically increased their understanding. During your time as the director of ATIP, did you locate programs that were working on the reverse engineering of non-terrestrial vehicles? Uh, I can't answer that question, unfortunately. That's fine. No problem. Now, I remember I'm also... Sorry. I, I don't mean to be <laughs> vague or evasive, but I, I, I can't answer that question. In all honesty, that's answer enough, Lou. I remember the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Mellon, once mentioned how there is a chance that he was not informed on everything regarding the UAP portfolio during his time in government. How concerned are you about the potential subversion of legal oversight and government authority on this issue due to the possibility of the UAP portfolio essentially being hidden within the confines of private industry? That's always a concern. You know, uh, 
uh, and there's people that that don't want to have a conversation they don't want to they don't want to talk about maybe the progress or or lack thereof that's been made um there's i think also a lot of fear as well uh, that's why we need to rather than villainize individuals who may have been part of some sort of legacy effort I think what we need to do is um, help them, help them have the conversation, realize, recognizing that, look, they were just doing your job at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to villainize anybody. And, uh, you know, maybe the answer is to some degree, you know, I, I hate to use the word offer some sort of immunity, but, you know, in a very vague sense, you know, give them the ability to have a conversation without fear of retribution or reprisal. Uh, and then, uh, you know, slowly have that conversation uh, with with the American people as well. Well, I would I would personally be fully behind any anything that would allow you know these things to come out as and and without risking, like you said, the the livelihoods or or anything of these people that have been involved. Because uh, you know you are correct. A lot of these people, if not most, if not all, are in their own mind serving their country and doing their job. And uh, I don't I don't think I'm not one of those people that personally believes in you know hooded cackling people in in a room who are trying to uh who are trying to trick us all with this i think that it's a lot more They're complex not. i can tell you that is absolutely not the case yeah, that, yeah. that's not the case at all there's no, no one in there that's purposely trying to 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 hurt the world hurt the american people you know try to fool them try to play gotcha uh, that's just conspiracy theory stuff uh, yeah that really doesn't have any basis in 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 reality um what are, your, what are your thoughts on the leaked transcripts that came from the estate of the late Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell that suggest a meeting took place between Dr. Eric W. Davis and the 13th director of the DIA, amongst other flag ranks, Admiral Thomas R. Wilson, wherein a scenario is described that involved the Admiral being essentially blacklisted from programs relating to UFO reverse engineering due to not meeting the criteria of what was called the bigot list, which is apparently a closely selected list of individuals and if you do not meet their briefing criteria regardless of oversight authority or possession of the correct tickets you will not be read into the program can i get your thoughts on what is known as the admiral wilson leaks do you believe this leaked transcript is describing a real incident uh well this kind of goes back first of all to your question about chris mellon and him saying that you Mm -hmm. know he never had it he never was briefed onto the program while he was inside and that's a problem uh a lot of programs exist and not everybody is going to be briefed to or have access to uh, a program. Um, that's just the way our government works. And, and we accept that uh, when we, when we work for the government. Um, with that said, as it specifically relates to the Admiral Wilson uh, documents and the alleged uh, uh, meetings that transpired, I, I can't, I can't discuss that. I, I wasn't around for that. That occurred uh, well before my tenure in ATIP, and uh, any speculation on my part probably would be um, it would it would it would not be it wouldn't be necessarily accurate because I I, I don't know I wasn't there um, you know it'd be pure, it'd be speculative and although it's it's maybe fun sometimes to speculate about things I, I'm not sure in this particular case um, it would be very helpful. Um, I, I, I would simply tell you from my perspective, uh, you know, probably ask, ask the individuals involved would be, would be my suggestion. 
Oh, believe me, I'm trying. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> it's something that you might might have been involved in because I have heard that this is true. Uh, Chris Bledsoe on record with Richard Dolan once said that his case was the very first case undertaken by the ATIP program. Now, I know that you have met with Chris a couple of times, but are you able to comment on this claim at all and confirm whether or not that's accurate? Um, you know, I, I don't want to get back into he said, she said stuff. Um, you know, I, I would probably, if, I would probably say that was more OSAP related. Right. Okay. Um, you know, ATIP was, was very much focused on the nuts and bolts. That could also be me. That could yeah. be me messing up the quote. He may have said OSAP. So just for the record for everyone okay. listening, that could be my mistake. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I, I want to be careful not to, to say something definitive, um, you know, from, from my perspective, that, that probably would be more appropriately uh, handled into the OSAP uh, at the time, rather than ATIP. No problem at all. Um, you mentioned in your recent interview on the platform That UFO Podcast that you are having to tiptoe right on the very edge. In fact, you said one wrong word and I will be over the edge. And this is in regards to what you can and can't say. Now, obviously, we understand that you're beholden to your non-disclosure agreements. But since you've stepped out into the public arena, have you been warned by members of the US government not to go beyond a particular line in the sand when it comes to discussing specifically the US government's own involvement and knowledge of the UFO issue? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the purpose of the NDA. You are acknowledging up front what your left and right limits are. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're reminded of that on a, a close and continuing basis, um, especially when you have an active security claims. You know, I'm, I'm still required to to report uh, routinely and regularly to, to government security officers right. if I suspect that there's been some sort of security violation. So uh, for me, it's... Um, I, there's a constant reminder. Uh, now, I think what you're asking me is having been warned, uh, perhaps in a little bit more direct sort of way by by government minders um, that may still be involved in the in the in the effort. And is that is that correct? Is that what you're, you're asking me? Well, by all means, you can answer that. Uh, you know, I have to be very careful. Um, you know, I have to be very cautious how I how I proceed with this endeavor. Um, you know, I, I haven't been pulled into someone's office and read the Riot Act, uh, if, if that's what you mean. But, mm-hmm. but I have been reminded on, on a regular basis that I need to be uh, cognizant of what's at stake and, uh, and um, you know, make sure I do things in a constructive way, not a destructive way. And that makes sense. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to blow up the process. I'm just trying to get the conversation going, knowing what, what, what I saw and what I had access to in the ATIP program, um, there's got to be a way to have that conversation at an unclassified level uh, and, and get people involved. Um, because I think this is a topic that doesn't belong under the providence of any particular country, organization, or, or, or institution. Uh, this is a topic that involves all of humanity. And as a result, we need to probably have that conversation you know as as a species i appreciate that response and i agree with you as well and you know because there's a 
there are, I'm sure you're aware. Well, I know you're aware because you have addressed it before in interviews, but there are a lot of people that consider some of the narratives coming from, well, obviously previously now uh, from TTSA, uh, you know, regarding the threat narrative and, and, you know, a lot of people, there's kind of a split into different camps where, you know, some really do feel that there's just this threat narrative being driven and that that's a conspiracy and that, you know, this it's all a psychological operation. But I have to admit that I've always thought of it as more about the fact that you can't really go into the, the Department of Defense and say, okay, so there's these, you know, beings and there are space brothers and we should be, you know, getting on with them. They kick you straight out of the Department of Defense. You have to go in with the idea of uh, threats, incursions over sensitive sites and, and the kind of language that the bureaucracy responds to. And I always saw you and Christopher Mellon and, and, and Jim Semivan as people that were essentially utilizing your knowledge within the U.S. government bureaucracy and uh, flipping it back on itself and, and addressing it and making it face, but basically making it look in the mirror and say, look, we have these tangible threats these issues, these incursions, it needs to be addressed. And so for me, I, I never really did feel like I saw a major threat narrative. But would I be right in saying that really it's just bureaucratic engagement using the correct language? You know, you have to know the system if you want the system to react. Right. Um, you have to know what levers to pull if you want to get a certain reaction. And the Department of Defense, it's in its very title, it's the Department of Defense. It's not the Department of Humanitarian Assistance. Right. It's not the Department of Space Exploration. It is the Department of Defense. Um, by virtue of its, of, of its design, it is a national security apparatus that has been designed to fight and win wars, decisively, by the way, and violently if necessary. So... Um, with that in context, I don't think it should be much of a surprise for people to, to, to recognize that uh, if you want the Department of Defense to look at something, it has to look at it from the lens or the aperture of a perceived threat. And without scaring people and saying, you know, this is an absolute threat, um, you know, the, 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 the approach we take is the approach that any any prudent mother or father would do, right? Um, you're going into a new area and with your child, a new playground, and the first thing they want to do is just run on all the equipment and, and have fun. Well, what's the first thing you do? You inspect the equipment before they play on it. And then you talk to them and say, okay, now listen, please be careful. You know, I don't want you going on the top part of the slide. I don't want you doing this or I do want you doing that. Uh, that's, that's important. Um, that's prudent. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think when it comes to this, to, to a potential threat, look, I, I'm, I'm under the, the presumption that anything and everything can be a threat until we can prove it's not. Um, that's, that's the world I come from. Uh, again, not trying to fear monger, but that's the reality. And, you know, when people say, well, you know, I'm an experiencer, quote unquote experiencer, I've, you know, I'm here to tell you that, that it's, it's benevolent. My response to that is, how do you know? That's your experience. And by the way, if, if from the world I come from, if, if I'm taken away uh, against my free will, that's called kidnapping. That's, uh, I, 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 it's, that's, that's no different than, than, than taking a hostage and holding someone hostage. Uh, or if I, God forbid, I touch you without your permission, that's assault. And I don't understand why it's so hard for people to grasp that, you know, 
maybe you think it's okay for that to happen, but I don't. I don't want anybody touching me or taking me somewhere or my family without my explicit permission. Period. Full stop. And I think it's. I think it is uh, a reckless. I think it's a reckless perspective to um, for us to just go down that road that everything is going to be hunky dory and that there is a species out there if there is that has significantly greater technology and capabilities as us. We're just going to go ahead and trust them. Um, you know, again, that may sound good for some people, but I'm, I'm not that way. I think we need to approach it very cautiously. Look, when we go scuba diving, uh, yeah, you go down, there's a lot of fish to see, a lot of pretty fish on the coral reef, but you know what? There's also sharks. Um, and by the way, a threat doesn't have to be intentional. It can be unintentional. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people all the time, if I go to an airport and I, and I, I get too close to a, a, a you know, a 747 about to take off, chances are, you know, I'm going to have some significant uh, biological issues. I'm going to go deaf. Uh, I lose my hearing. I'm going to get burned from the, from the exhaust. Um, it's not necessarily a direct deliberate threat, but it's an indirect threat none, nonetheless, and one that needs to be recognized. So I think at a minimum, we need to understand the technology more uh, and, and proceed cautiously. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying it is or isn't a threat, but look at the background I come from. Is it really that much of a surprise that being an intelligence career, intelligence officer and, and Department of Defense as well, that I look at things not as a threat. That's, that's, I think, I think people just need to, to understand the world I come from and the world we're in, and then maybe they can better appreciate our, our tactic. And by the way, no, I don't think for the record, just to clear this up, I don't think that these things are necessarily a direct threat, but I also don't want to take the chance. And so I'm going to do my due diligence to continue to, to try to figure that out. Well, following along the same line of a threat and and how a country's defense apparatus should perhaps respond to this, in a recent white paper written by a colleague and friend of mine, Frank Milburn, published on the Begain Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, Frank asked Dr. Sarfati if a tic-tac with its surrounding field would be susceptible to weapons like surface-to-air or air-to-air missiles, aircraft cannon, lasers, railguns, EMP devices, or even nuclear warheads that were detonated in proximity to a UAP, Sarfati theorized that if the warp field surrounding the UAP is strong enough, it could essentially create, and I'll quote Jack here, a white hole artificial event horizon generated by the metamaterial, which would prevent anything from penetrating, no matter how powerful the energy associated with the weapon used against the Tic Tac was. Now, if that's correct, then this would mean more advanced weapons being developed like lasers and rail guns are already obsolete, except for against near peer adversaries. It is this not then an even better argument for development of offensive and defensive UAP technology, essentially in order to mitigate the threats presented by both our adversaries and the operators of UAP, and especially to get there first before China or Russia do? Well, I mean, sure. Uh, first of all, you asked me to comment on on Mr. Safradi's um, physics model. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm not a physicist. So I, I'm not sure I really can do that. I can't. I can't tell you uh, the validity of, of his scientific modeling um, and whether something is or is not impenetrable and whatnot. Um, I'm certainly not qualified for that. But if there is something out there that displays 
extremely advanced, uh, extremely advanced capabilities, uh, whether it's a weapon system or propulsion, you know, I, I'm, I think there is a potential threat. There are countries out there we know that are a fact that if they had a strategic advantage on us, uh, they would use those um, in an irresponsible way. Um, they, they would use them probably as a weapon of war rather than uh, a weapon of peace. And so uh, as a result of that, I think, um, I think it's, 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 it's incumbent upon us to do our due diligence to make sure that uh, if this technology is viable, it does not get into the wrong hands. Um, that would be my suggestion. And uh, we need to, now, what does that mean, right? I mean, people could say, well, you know, you guys in the United States have had a history too of sometimes being abusive and, and you know, not, not using technology very, very, right, very in right. a very nice way. And I, the response to that is you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the solution really is. And this is why it's so important that we have the conversation at the macro level with our elected officials. Um, and, and by the way, it is the people that need to drive that conversation. That's very, very important. And I think, in, you know, until we're able to do that, uh, we're still going to be asking these same fundamental questions. Um, you know, I, I don't want this technology getting in the hands of an adversary. I also don't want it getting into the hands of somebody irresponsible in my own country, right? Right. Um, and this is why the more transparency we have by people, the harder it is for that to happen. Um, we begin to... to um, we begin to have visibility into this area in a manner that makes it very, very tough for anybody to get away with anything, you know, sneaky. Now I'm going to, I'm going to segue into something completely different here, but something that fascinates me is the undeniable overlap between secret societies, occult practices, and the phenomenon. A notable example of this comes from one of the pioneers of the American rocketry program, Jack Parsons, who was not only a genius rocket engineer, but also a devotee to the 20th century English magician and occult leader, Alistair Crowley and his religion of Thelema. Alongside the occult ties and beliefs of the Americans who built the foundations of what would become NASA, you also have the undeniable occult ties that can be found within the Nazi party, especially within the inner sanctums of the SS. Now, taking into consideration Operation Paperclip, where the Americans and Russians were fighting over getting the brightest of the Nazi scientists after the war, and the fact that high-level SS members became a part of the American rocketry program, is it fair to say that NASA was built almost entirely, if not entirely, by practicing members of the occult, both from the American side and from the Nazi side that were brought over via paperclip? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, let me see if I can dissect that a little bit. Um, Please. I know it's quite a big occult. one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Um, occult and and conspiracy theories um and whatnot are usually uh, are usually or originate uh in the vacuum of knowledge um and they leave room for speculation and so belief now takes the place of of fact and uh belief isn't necessarily fact sometimes it is sometimes it isn't and so in this particular case um you know i think when you look at our country's history uh, to including our founding fathers, um, there were always organizations and groups that influenced um, our our country. To include our constitution, uh, back then it was the Masons. In fact, if you look at uh, the Freemasons, if you were to look at the entire blueprint of uh, Washington D.C., 
we mm-hmm. owe a lot of that in architecture yeah. uh, to the contributions of the Freemasons. Now, that's not a bad thing. You know, they, they're not a disruptive force. And of course, some people are going to say, well, that's not a cult. I'm not saying it's a cult. I'm just saying there's a long, deep, rich history of countries in particular, all countries, frankly, not just the United States, of being influenced from time to time by outside groups um, that have specific agendas. Some of those agendas are good. Some of those agendas are not so good. Um, but it's nothing new. And so when you say NASA, uh, you know, uh, has been influenced by by the occult, my simple response is, well, of course it has. But it's not just NASA. It's it's a lot of institutions, even our military. When you look at our rank structure and the symbols that we use for, right, right. for, for colonels and whatnot, I mean, symbolism is everywhere. Look at the American dollar bill, right? I mean, look mm-hmm. at the American flag. There's symbols in everything that we have of military heraldry. People's people's family crest is is to some degree uh, in in the same way. It's 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 a tradition, and that symbols mean something. Um, I think the problem is is when you allow uh, the when you when you allow any organization that's based upon faith and belief um, to drive. Um, the decisions and the results of scientific endeavors, that's when I, I, I have a problem with it. But the fact that NASA during Operation Paperclip uh, recruited a bunch of folks and some for the, from the German Ananerva program, that, that doesn't really bother me. Um, you know, I, I, I know it sounds a little bizarre for some people. Um, I think we need to be cautious and careful that we don't allow uh, certain influences uh, to to outside to to influence um, decisions being made on the inside based upon only you know trust or faith. Um, I think that's where that's the role of science. Um, you know, I, I'm always careful with conspiracy theories because you know most conspiracy theories have some sort of truth to them. There's there's a there's a baseline truth. Um, the problem is, is that you take that truth and you you have one percent true, and then you stretch it with ninety nine percent bullshit, and that's that's mm. that's where it becomes dangerous. Well, the um, reason I the reason I asked it was because I was wondering if um, it it bore any relevance to your own issues within the Department of Defense when it came to beliefs from high ranking members of the government that these beings represented a demonic force and should not even be acknowledged, let alone studied. I was wondering if this current belief that's being held by high-ranking members of America's defense intelligence bureaucracy um, is a belief that's been bolstered by the occult history of America's space program? Uh, no, it, 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 that happened because of religion. Um, there were the, the, what we were doing in ATIP in early days of OSAP was, um, was really challenging some people's um, right. personal theological positions. Uh, it wasn't because of, if you will, Ananarva or anything like that, right. you know, the, the cult like that influencing uh, decision makers within the Pentagon. It was far more mundane and uh, uh, common. It was it was organized religion in this particular case. But, you know, I also have to be careful because people say, well, are you saying organized religion is the enemy? No, it's not. You know, I'm a man of faith myself. Uh, I just think we have to be very careful how we proceed with things. Uh, You know, when we introduce our own personal bias into into the calculus of science, uh, we always have to be mindful of that. 
And uh, again, I'm not saying in this particular case that religion was bad because I had a lot of people in ATIP that were very religious and it did not affect our ability to run, to run the program. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's a really good question, a question that probably would take us another hour to discuss um, <laughs> because we're talking about game you know, if the you psyche are. of people. <laughs> uh, it, it, we're getting into the psyche of, of, of what it means to be human yeah. and our fears and our, our bias and our likes and dislikes. Um, but no, it wasn't anything cultish that, that interfered with us. It was, it was, it was, um, it was us. It was our own, our own people. Now, I, I truly believe that there is a necessary symbiosis required between physics and what we can call metaphysics. What would you say to a, a Newtonian material reductionist scientist who considers the human being to be a, a mechanical mechanism within essentially a, a dead universe where consciousness is a generated bioeffect of complex neural connections and nothing more? Would you agree with this or, or do you have a differing viewpoint? No, I, I have a much different viewpoint. Um, you know, I, I, let me give you case in point. You can have uh, a human being can survive without, uh, uh, you can have a, a double amputee uh, and sur- or a quadriplegic even and, and, and survive without limbs uh, just fine. Um, so the body itself doesn't really define who we are as a human being. The, the body is a, is, a, is a life support mechanism. It's a spaceship, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what what's inside and then you have individuals uh you have the brain uh, which has a neural synapses and a lot of brains look very similar when you take a, a particular cat scan and you look at one brain to another human brain um you know you have a lot of commonalities you have optical lobes and the cerebrum your cerebellum and the medulla uh, so there's a lot of commonalities um so it's probably not the brain and probably not the body that defines what a human being is and just a collection of neural synapses. Otherwise, a computer would be defined as a human being. A computer now is getting to the point in complexity where, where the pathways, although silicon and not carbon, are getting equally as, as complex as a human brain. In fact, we can even teach it to learn through, through artificial intelligence. Right, right. But that's not what defines the human being. No. And, um, you know, there's, there's another aspect and some have called it a soul or an id or the chi or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But there's something that, that most people feel is an indelible part of the human being, um, that is not necessarily contained within the body or the mind. And, uh, that could be, you know, a lot of scientists now are looking and exploring the idea the notion that human consciousness is, is really a quantum process in quantum yeah. physics. Yeah. And, um, you know, it could very well be, you know, that our brains are, are quantum computers. And if that's the case, and that re- if that is really the case, then there may be a fundamental part of a human being um, that is not necessarily locked into a three-dimensional world yeah. Uh, yeah. and a linear function of time. Um, well, I, I honestly agree 100% with that. It's, it's something that I've thought of myself uh, over time is that the human being could potentially be some form of biological quantum computer and you know it can interact with the field of consciousness in a lot of different ways we're just tuned into one frequency but something i wanted to ask as well is um what areas of innovation do you currently see happening in the world that you believe will bring us closer to the answers regarding both consciousness and also uap because these things are connected what what i mean by that is are, are there any specific areas that you feel people should be focusing their attention on whether this be physics technology 
technology or something else, what are you paying attention to personally when it comes to human innovation and an increased understanding of the UAP issue? Wow. Um, you know what? I, I don't want to prejudice a jury. I think everybody should should explore on their own. Um, I, I do have areas of, of focus that I tend to, to pay attention to a little bit more than others, but um, it, that's really kind of irrelevant um, because what I may be focusing on may not necessarily be uh, what other people should focus on. Um, so any, I know that's any not hints? very helpful. <laughs> Uh, you know, keep an open mind. Yeah. Um, okay. Good advice. We, we need more, we need more data, and and anything is possible. Um, everything, all options are on the table until they're not. Yeah. And uh, you know, try not to to go down the rabbit hole of jumping to conclusions prematurely and saying, "Oh, this mm -hmm. is the answer for sure," uh, because that can be uh, as equally as destructive as as you know, not asking any questions at all. But. Um, That'd be my that'd be my advice. Uh, keep an open mind. Continue to pursue. Ask questions. Uh, question everything. Question everybody. Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's what we're supposed to do. And if anybody gets upset with, feels for example threatened uh, about the questioning, well, maybe they don't know their facts as well as they should. Because um, you shouldn't feel threatened by by anybody asking you a question. Uh, I. I I think this is where we, we run the, the problem of people having these preconceived notions and narratives already kind of cooked and, and, and they spend so much time uh, developing these ideas that they become married to them. And in some cases, they start profiting from them. And once that happens, uh, it's really very hard to back yourself out of that corner. Yeah. So something I really wanted to touch on, um, and thank you for that, because I, I absolutely resonate and agree with what you were saying there. Um, something I wanted to touch on is the infamous slide nine that was discovered by a fellow researcher, also called Jay, creator of the platform The Mind Sublime, who discovered on Christopher Mellon's webpage an ATIP presentation slide, which included uh, within it some pretty disturbing conclusions. This is what the presentation slide said. The science exists for an enemy of the United States to manipulate both physical and cognitive environments in order to penetrate U.S. facilities, influence decision makers, and compromise national security. The slide then goes on to list the applications of this science, which includes psychotronic weapons, penetration of solid surfaces, alteration or manipulation of biological organisms, instantaneous sensor disassembly, unique cognitive human interface experiences, and one of the most disturbing and intriguing, anomalies in the space-time construct. Now, this slide, if I'm correct, is essentially saying that a science or technology exists that would allow for the complete and total manipulation of both cognitive and physical environments, including the manipulation of the very fabric of space-time itself. Is that correct? I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Right. So uh, this slide also mentions how the Department of Defense has been involved in similar experiments in the past and has relationships with renowned subject matter experts, finishing off by saying that the DOD controls several facilities where activities have been detected. Now, many credible investigators and government insiders have alluded to the participation of United States Special Forces engaging in psychological warfare testing operations on US soldiers. Some have even claimed that perhaps these activities were responsible for a portion of the alleged UAP sightings over nuclear facilities and may have been conducted as penetration tests under the purview of a top secret program. 
one proponent of this theory is Dr. Jacques Vallée. In fact, he has been a long-standing proponent of this idea in various capacities over the years, hypothesizing that man-made illusions have in fact been behind a number of famous cases over the years, stating further that he has met special forces veterans who have admitted as much. In a fairly recent interview, Dr. Jacques Vallée stated that the famous Rendlesham Forest incident, which took place in the UK, was, quote, simply too similar to other psychological warfare exercises sizes I am familiar with for me to jump to the conclusion that it was a UFO. Now, as I understand it, illusions like this may actually be possible utilizing, for instance, holography towers and geoparabolic test beds on land that is rich in chromium ore. The idea goes back all the way to World War II with the successful tactics of psychological warfare against the Germans in the form of phantom armies on the ground and phantom fighter planes in the sky. The concept also stems to things like Operation Bluebeam and even alleged false indication and warnings. Now you, sir, with both an extensive background in the special forces as well as heading up ATIP, would appear to be an ideal candidate to speak on this topic. One may even be forgiven for feeling that you would have a need to know on this. Now with that said, are you aware of any extraterrestrial UAP-related tests ever having been perpetrated against the United States military or the civilian population? By Americans? By, by the American or, government? Or, yes, or by another foreign adversary, human? Uh, not by the American government at okay. all. Okay. Um, that's, that's, I'm, I'm pretty confident of that because there's, there's things that we have to deal with in the intelligence world. People don't realize that we're bound by law. Okay. There's something called a procedure 15, uh, which is violation, which is, uh, uh, basically, basically involving questionable intelligence activities. And we do not have the ability to conduct experiments uh, because in the past we did. We had things like the electric Kool-Aid acid test and we had done some pretty nasty things, including uh, the syphilis, uh, where we as a government participated in some pretty abhorrent uh, activities. Um, very t terrible, in fact. So as a result of that, um, laws were made to, to prohibit that from ever happening again. And uh, that is a result of, of abuses that occurred in the past. So I think in today's day and age, it would be exceedingly unlikely for anybody in the U.S. government apparatus to be conducting tests like this against American, uh, against the American population. Um, it, it would, first of all, there's too many oversight organizations that are watching. Um, so it'd be next to impossible to get away with it for very long. And the two, most Americans are patriots that work in the government. You know, they, they're not out to try to hurt the American people. There's, I think a lot of people think that, that there is this rogue element in there that goes unchecked and it's just, you know, running amok within the U.S. government and, and trying to, uh, you know, trample on people's rights. That's never been the case that I've ever seen. I've never, ever, ever seen that. Um, usually anybody who starts to do that is is dealt with very, very quickly within the U.S. government. Um, that type of, of, of behavior doesn't last for very long, um, if at all, just because there's, there's, there's too many people watching. And, and frankly, I don't, I don't think we have bad people in our government. You know, I know there's a lot of people that want to continue to villainize 
uh, the American government, but I, I, I reject that notion. I, I don't think, at least my experience over 20 some years in US government, I've never, I've never seen that. People want to protect Americans. They don't want to hurt them. Um, so anyway, just about all I can say probably for that. No, I appreciate, I appreciate that response, Lou. Um, we are running out of time now and I have so many other questions, so I'm going to have to skip down to my very last one because it's, uh, it's quite lengthy. But I would like to be honest with you about my own involvement in this issue. And so if you don't mind, I would like to tell you about one of the most profound experiences of my life, which led directly to me establishing Project Unity. And then I'd very much like to get your thoughts on it afterwards. Sure. And I, by the way, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you. Um, you know, understand that on my side, though, there's no judgment. So, uh, you know, happy to, to hear what you have to say. Well, I appreciate that. So um, I was introduced to the subject and I'm going to try and cut a very long story short here, but I was introduced to the subject of UFOs through the consciousness side of the conversation. I'm 26 now, and it was only a few years ago that I first dipped my toes into this area of research. However, and to cut a very long story short, the UFO subject was introduced to me at a time of depression in my life, and it was introduced in a way that I can only really classify as an immense synchronicity. One of the first areas of interest I stumbled upon was the apparent ability to utilize non-local consciousness to essentially initiate a rudimentary form of communication or contact with some aspects of the phenomenon. And I also became very familiar with the remote viewing programs, the Stargate program, and all of its other following uh, programs like Grill Flame, and et cetera. And this type of information happened to coincide with pre-existing research and insights into consciousness that I'd been undertaking before I was introduced to the UFO subject. And funnily enough, I was introduced to the UFO subject by my very best friend, who I consider a bit of a spiritual partner, in all honesty, because of the amount of synchronicities between the two of us. So it's uh, quite interesting that he was the one that did it. But needless to say, I was quite convinced that this type of communication via consciousness was possible. And so I began to go outside into my garden at night. I would calm myself into a meditative state. And from that calm state of mind, I'd begin to model very coherent thoughts and essentially visualize that I was projecting these thoughts out into space. It did not take very long for me to begin seeing some strange things. This started with white flashes of light in the night sky. These were static flashes that would appear in one area of space, multiple flashes from one area with no discernible structure causing the flash. I would also see large volumes of white orbs of light within a very short time span. Although these did appear to look like satellites, I was seeing upwards of 15 to 20 within the space of only five to 10 minutes, which is far more frequent than any satellites I've ever seen. And on top of this, some of these objects would grow in brightness exponentially. And then at the apex of this would flash brightly before then subsiding down in brightness to appear similar to a satellite again. Now I am aware of IR flares or iridium flares, but this does not occur multiple times as the satellite traverses the skyline. Whereas these would flash sometimes over and over again as they traversed. And it did seem to be in connection to my responses and thoughts. Now, these were the first signs that something was happening, but what happened on the 25th of August 2019 changed my life. Um, so I was outside in my garden at night and I was attempting to initiate a form of contact by modeling my thoughts and intentions on this goal. Um, there are other things I saw before this, but I want to try and keep this as quick as I can for you to respond. What I saw coming across the left hand side of my sky was a dark cloud that I can only describe as staticky or highly charged. I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. It was as if every single particle of the cloud was agitated or highly energized. And this cloud was drifting quite normally as a cloud does, 
but its appearance was nothing I'd ever seen before. It was traversing my sky from left to right, just normally going across. And as it came above my house and it was in direct alignment with me, it did a complete 90 degree change of course and began heading across the sky in alignment with me, uh, essentially moving down the garden path towards me, but still high up in the sky. As it got above my head, this cloud literally vanished. It faded out in a matter of seconds. It just kind of fizzled away. And inside this cloud was a triangular formation of roughly 25 to 30 orange orbs of light. It didn't stop above my head. When the cloud vanished and I saw what was within it, it was still moving, but now it was a crystal clear formation of orbs, some of which I could see were weaving in between each other as this formation traversed the skyline. It vanished over the horizon and my life was changed forever. Now, the first person I called was my mum. I was basically in tears. Uh, now, Lou, before you respond, you need to be aware that on three other occasions since that event, I have seen orange orbs come over my sky. And on one of these occasions, three orbs literally came down and hovered above my house. And I don't know what they are. I have no understanding of this other than the fact that I am completely unequivocally convinced that they responded to my desires, intentions, and coherent thoughts regarding contact. I can't see how it's possible through any other means, as it would need to be such a staggering coincidence for these things to turn up exactly when I was attempting to initiate contact. Now, I, I tell you this simply because this is why I'm here doing what I'm doing. I want to know what they are. And I also, you know, I want people to understand that consciousness is integral to this subject. And I firmly believe in the non-local capacity of consciousness, its ability to exchange quantum information, regardless of distance. And Jim Semivan once said that you told him that you believe we will find the answers to this subject between the nexus of consciousness and quantum mechanics. I believe this as well. And I'm going to be quiet now and allow you to respond to this because in, in all honesty, any insights that you can provide would be really appreciated for my personal journey. Wow. Well, uh, again, thank you for for sharing that with me. Um, You're welcome. I appreciate it. And I know it's a very intimate uh, and sincere story that you have. And I want to thank you for sharing that with me and your audience. Thank you. Uh, two, I'm not surprised that you, you've, you've had those experiences. Um, I spoke to many, many people that have had um, very interesting um, experiences as it relates to the UAP phenomenon. Uh, a lot of the pilots have been affected uh, irrevocably, um, profoundly, yeah. uh, to the point where uh, they've committed now their lives uh, to trying to pursue this topic. Uh, a lot of military people who've been, if you will, witness to, to UAP activity. Uh, as far as your experiences, um, you know, all I can say is I, I, I wasn't there. So uh, I can't. Uh, tell you one way or another what you should necessarily think about it. What I can tell you is that there's a lot of people who've had very compelling experiences and many of them swear by it and are absolutely certain that they have the ability to interact with or control or influence these things. Um, and unfortunately, there's nothing I can do to one way or the other to um, to prove or disprove. It's it's too yeah, subjective. That's my frustration as well. Um, yes. Now, my approach to that, since uh, there's not much I can do, is to continue focusing on the science aspect. Yeah. Which is the nuts and bolts. It does not mean that any of the other aspects are less important. Uh, I think people oftentimes confuse that when I say 
you know, just the facts, ma'am, or just the science. Well, we've got a walk think, before we can run. Absolutely. Look, guys, we don't even understand what's in the bottom of our own ocean, you know, right. let alone uh, how the human mind works and its ability to do things. Um, you know, my my biggest issue with with this topic has never been people who've experienced things. It's been people who have provided false narratives uh, based upon incomplete information, people that have profited from uh, other individuals to quote unquote, share the truth or tell a yeah, story. Yeah. Um, that's my problem. That's my problem. That's it's never been about experiencers or, or anything like that. Um, I just think that we always have to remain diligent of, of the facts. And, you know, I, that's why I never talk about my, my, my own personal beliefs. It's not that I don't think they happened or they did happen or they didn't happen. I'm just not sure how valid it is um, in the grand scheme of things um, because there's not a whole lot I can do with it. It's too subjective. Yeah. I can't, I can't brief somebody uh, on, on, on data that can't be necessarily repeated all the time or in the scientific or, or be, be proven in the science using the scientific method. Um, you know, if, if we get to a point where we can do that, then that's fantastic. You know, then we've got even a more interesting conversation to have, but until that occurs, I've got to, I've got to focus on, on the nuts and bolts um, as much as a turnoff that may be for some people. Um, that's kind of what I have to do. Yeah. And I, I, I know for a lot of people it's very frustrating and they probably look at it as kind of being sincere and, you know, but that's what I have to work with um, because there's no way it's like religion. You know, the, the reason why people feel the way they do about religion, you can have uh, people with different backgrounds um, believing in, 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 in a similar God, but then they describe it completely different. And uh, it's, it's tough. It, it's, it's very, very tough. It puts me, puts me in a situation where now I have to, I have to defend the veracity of information that frankly is anecdotal. And again, it's not that it's not true. Yeah. It could very well be true and accurate, but I have no way to prove it. And so if I have no way to prove it, I'm kind of wasting my time. It's interesting to hear and listen to, but I, I can't offer anything. I can't offer any type of solution. I, I agree. It's, you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's extremely subjective experiences. And this is something that I've had to come to terms with as well. And I have actually, you know, focused a bit more on, on the nuts and bolts aspects of these, of these subjects, because like you said, what can I do? I have to just be patient and hope for an answer to arrive at some point. Maybe someone smarter than me right. will be able to figure this out. And I suspect it will. I mean, I, I, I suspect it will over time. We'll, we'll begin to, to learn more, but you know, before you can you can figure out the intentions of of the great squid of the Pacific and his feeding patterns, you have first have to find one, right? Right. You have right. to get your butt underwater and, and see it, and <laughs> and then start studying it, and then then and only then maybe can you start figuring out some of the bigger questions, you know, surrounding its you know migratory patterns and feeding behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I just want to thank you most sincerely for taking the time to be here with me. I hope it hasn't been too much of an interrogation. <laughs> No, no. Listen, my pleasure. I, I think I think we need to have a conversation, and I think you're doing a great job. And I, I really appreciate your audience. I'm sorry I'm not quite as lively as I normally am. Uh, I'm, unfortunately, 
I'm uh, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I don't doubt it. You've been on, a, on a, a, good... yeah. You've been on a path of interviews recently. You need some rest, my friend. Yeah, I I do. Uh, I I agree. I definitely could use some rest. Um, but thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for sharing with me your 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 personal experience. Um, I'm I'm humbled that you would do that. Thank you so much. And I know it's probably difficult doing that on air, uh, right? Because now the whole world's going to know your experience. So, <laughs> well, I have spoken about it before on my platform, to be fair. Um, so some people will have heard it, maybe not some others that are more recent to my platform. But no, I, I wanted to share it with you because it's it's sincere and it is the reason why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. But um, honestly, thank you again. You are without a doubt, to me at least, an American hero. And it really has been a pleasure and hopefully one to be repeated in the future. Well, well, thank you. But, you know, I can't let you say that without me giving credit where credit is due. And I, I'm really, uh, you know, people say that uh, I'm, a, I'm a hero. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I'm just doing my job. So there's a lot of people I've served with many heroes before in the past, um, you know, that that deserve that title. Um, and I, I really I I. I'm not one of those, but I thank you very much. Well, I, I know. Okay. I understand where you're coming from there, but a lot of people really do appreciate what you're doing, Lou. So I just wanted to highlight that. And especially for me personally, that's, that's how I feel. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. And the feeling's quite mutual. And remember, I can't, I can't succeed and do my job if you guys don't do yours. So it's, um, you know, we're working together. It really is a team effort. <laughs>